How do you embody a historical figure with no known recordings of her voice? How do you create the feel, the sound, the lingo of an unsung heroine? What is a policy racket? The answers to that and more coming right up on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. This week, Radio Drama Revival is brought to you by Inside Podcasting with Sky Pillsbury. Each episode, Sky interviews the creator of a different podcast, drawing out their histories, their motivations, and their craft. It is, in fact, quite a lot like Radio Drama Revival, except that, mercifully, Sky mostly interviews producers of non-fiction podcasts. Although she did interview Ian Chillog about Everything is Alive, so please support the podcast whose talent and skill imperils this one, Inside Podcasting. From in-the-dark host Madeline Barron to slow-burn creator Leon Nafok to untold hundreds of future guests, if you want insightful interviews from a veteran of the worlds of PR, startups, and marketing, Sky is your woman. They've just closed out season one, so you've got a bunch of episodes to queue up for a marathon listening session just in time for season two. One of the people she's interviewing is legendary tech journalist and certified badass Kara Swisher, founder of Recode and host of Recode Decode and Pivot. So, once again, that's Inside Podcasting. Last week, you heard season one of Harlem Queen, a podcast that chronicles the adventures of Stephanie St. Clair, activist, philanthropist, columnist, gangster. This week, my colleague, our submissions editor, your friend and mine, Elena Fernandez-Collins, filled in for me to have a conversation with show creator Yanni Smith and the voice actress for Stephanie St. Clair, Gabrielle Adkins. Let's take a listen to their conversation about the origins of Harlem Queen, the real historical Stephanie St. Clair, and the care and feeding of policy rackets. Hi, Yanni and Gabrielle. Thank you so much for coming on to Radio Drama Revival to talk about Harlem Queen. Thank you for having us. Yes, this is you. very exciting. <laughs> Hooray. Um, we really love Harlem Queen over at RDR. We're really excited to talk about this. We really loved learning about um, Madame Sinclair uh, through it. So I would love to ask you both, when did you hear about Madame Sinclair for the first time? So uh, the very first time I heard of her was um, maybe two and a half, maybe three years ago when I was writing a script about the Harlem Renaissance. And um, I lost that script. I lost it on my, obviously I'm not very computer savvy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh, lost it. So I started from scratch and um, in my limited research, like doing some quick Wikipedia searches, I came across this name, Stephanie St. Clair or Madame Stephanie St. Clair. And at first I didn't click on it because I thought she was going to be a madam, a madam at a brothel or something because I just assumed that's what all women did. And well, business women did in the 1920s. So, um, but then I did go back and click on it and I just could not believe that number one, I had never heard of this woman that compared to like um, Al Capone or Dutch Schultz or Lucky Luciano. These are all people that I knew of, and I had never heard of Madame Stephanie St. Clair, who was their contemporary and who kind of beat them at their own game. So I just learned about her myself a few years ago. Yeah, I also, this was kind of new for me because I 
had really only heard of her about two months before I started doing the podcast. So it was, yeah, it was really random that like over my Christmas break, I ended up reading this article about Stephanie St. Clair. And I was like, I've never heard of this woman before. And she was just so amazing and incredible. And I, I, like Yanni was saying, I was so baffled about why I had never heard of her before. And then within a couple of months, I got a listing about, um, about recording a podcast about her. So I was floored. I was so excited. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's how I, that's really how I heard about her. A, a random article that I found, um, I guess, last December. Yanni, you, you mentioned that, that you were writing a script for the Harlem Renaissance when you found out about Madame Sinclair. I'm really curious as to what was your understanding of the Harlem Renaissance up to that point, and did Sinclair change that understanding? Yeah, so my understanding was that the Harlem Renaissance was um, mostly about uh, a literary and cultural artistic mecca in Harlem during the 1920s into the 30s. So um, I was really initially writing about, I had Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston and they were solving mysteries and I thought this was just so brilliant, but like I said, I lost it and it really wasn't that that good. So, <laughs> um, so uh, but then when I did learn about Madame Stephanie St. Clair and not just her, but also, um, Madam C.J. Walker, who was a um, another black woman uh, businesswoman and who was a millionaire who also lived in Harlem, as well as Casper Hallstein and Bumpy Johnson. Um, these Madam Sinclair was not a numbers runner, but these number runners such as Hallstein and Johnson, they actually um, provided a nice economy for Harlem. They provided jobs. Some of the money that they earned, they gave back to the community. They gave back to schools. They gave back to um, the UNIA, the United Negro Improvement Association. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was. I did learn by learning about Madame Saint Clair. I learned a little more about the economy of the Harlem Renaissance and how people like her. Um, actually supported the artists of the Harlem Renaissance, like Caspar Hallstein provided um, a, a, a prize to the literary contest winners for the, um, not Opportunity, but for the Crisis magazine, if, if I recall that correctly. But um, he did certainly provide prize money for writers during that time. So yeah, I'm glad I stumbled on her. I learned about her because through her and uh, the other numbers runners, I learned a little more about the economy of the Harlem Renaissance and the patronage. Gabrielle, I'd love to know your answer to this question, especially since you just learned about Madame Sinclair recently. Yeah, um, I think she changed so much of my perspective of what I thought I knew about the Harlem Renaissance. I think, I think what I knew is kind of what I had learned as a kid, that it was a a time of great, like, art in uh, for the Black community in New York City during the 1920s and, and I guess the 1910s as well. What I didn't realize was it, it was more than just art. 
it was also in terms of businesses and in terms of uh, just a boom in the community in terms of like economic wealth as well. And the savvy of, of Stephanie St. Clair, I was just so impressed with. And then by learning about her, I've also learned about all these other people whose names weren't necessarily always thrown out there, such as Langston Hughes. Yeah, I think it's just expanded what I thought I knew about the Harlem Renaissance and what an amazing time it actually was. I mean, also precarious and <laughs> some violence, uh, but, <laughs> but also <laughs> incredible in terms of like innovation and creation as well. Yanni, you mentioned, you know, talking about the, the number games. So can you talk about what those looked like in 20s Harlem for our listeners and maybe also how they differ from the like legal lotteries that we have today? Okay, so I will give my best understanding of the numbers game, how it looked in the 1920s. So um, according to the information that I read, Casper um, Halstein was really kind of, it's really kind of credited for bringing the numbers to Harlem. Um, the notion of a lottery has always existed throughout, you know, history, apparently. Um, they even had lotteries in the colonies during the colonial times. So this particular numbers game was that um, you bet on a number. So and the, the way people found these numbers were through birth dates or scriptures or their favorite numbers or their wedding dates. So it's a three digit number, typically. And uh, you bet a dime, a nickel, a penny, what, whatever, a dollar. And so that number uh, is uh, uh, like announced the next day. So usually through, um, at one point, I think they were using this intricate system of the system that was put into place to pick these numbers. Um, and the numbers were publicized. And so if you hit your number, usually a good payout at the time was 500 to one or 600 to one, which was like, uh, like if you put down a dollar, you, you earned 600 bucks, right? Is that right? Is that, mm -hmm. that sounds right. <laughs> so, which is, which is like, can you imagine even today, like turning a dollar into $600? So, so the way um, numbers runner numbers runners earn their money was that not everyone's going to hit the number. So this is money that you were earning from people every day, every dollar, every dime, every penny, because that number is not always going to hit every day. So you're it's kind of like a, not a guarantee, but um, a very lucrative way to to get people's money. So now the big difference nowadays is that the lottery is legal. Right. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Right. So what what started happening was that um the state started taking over these numbers games to get rid of the quote unquote violence and um underworld and uh, criminality and illegal happenings in the black community. And basically they made it legal and they started earning money off of these games. So you have like the pick six and the pick four and da da da. And this, is, this was a better, theoretically, quote unquote, a better system because everyone knew the number 
it was at the same time. So at six o'clock, you knew the number, what the number was going to be, what the number of the day was. Whereas during Madame St. Clair's time, it was more like you go to the barbershop, you go to the grocer, you go to your corner store, and everyone kind of figured, you know, not gets word of the number. And so you mentioned, of course, that Madame St. Clair was not a, uh, a numbers runner, right? She actually was what even more confusing is a policy banker. So she didn't actually, she hired people to actually go and uh, collect the bets, right? So she hires me, I go to the barbershop, I go make my rounds, I collect people's numbers and their bets. And she was the one who, if, if a number hit, she had to pay out that hit. So it was, let's say, you know, I hit, I get earned 600 bucks. She owes me that 600 bucks. But in the meantime, she's earning however many dollars that day um, for the people who didn't hit. So, and not, not everyone's number is going to hit every day. Not, you know, not, uh, yeah, sometimes not, there, there could be a day where there's no hit. So you could earn, you know. It could be quite lucrative. Oh, wow. <laughs> but she she was what you would call a policy banker. She was the one who um, collected the money and paid the bet if if it paid the money if it hit. Awesome. I love getting into how all of that works. Um, I think that there's not a lot of material, uh, artistic material in podcasting, especially that talks about this. The one that... I have listened to before is, of course, Bronzeville. Yeah, um, I've listened to that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where they, they talk a lot about the um, these policy games, right? Right. Mm-hmm. What's one lesson, both of you, that you've taken away from your research, from learning about Madame Sinclair, and also perhaps, you know, embodying her in this audio? You go first. <laughs> <laughs> I need more time to think. <laughs> Hmm, one thing. Oh, goodness. Um, You can also say multiple things. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, like, one thing thing I've learned or taken away from just being a part of this. Yeah. Just to make sure I understand. (laughs) Yeah, just, you know, one thing that, something that you took away that, that resonated for you and was important for you when you learned about Madame Sinclair and when you researched her and... And, for, and in your case, like embodied her in this, in this um, audio drama. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest things was her confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I think her because she just she had this way of of just doing things. I think she was very clever and I think she planned things out as well. So I'm not necessarily saying that she kind of did things without thinking. I think, honestly, I feel like that was more her, like, I guess we could say nemesis, um, Schultz. (laughs) Um, I feel like he did more of things of like, just like not thinking about it. Um, I think she was very clever and I think she planned things, but I think she was incredibly strong and confident and and I think she did what she thought was necessary I I also love how much she gave back to the community 
like everything that she did and she would put out she would put out these um these uh i guess not listings but she would respond to people in newspapers and when she was getting threats from Schultz, or she would sp- respond to them in newspapers um, and make a joke about it. Right. Um, it was she, like yeah. a Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> it was oh, like oh her Twitter it really was. years ago. It was like, exactly what it was. It was, a, it was like a Twitter feed. Like, she would just, like, she would, that's, like, that's such a good analogy. Like, Very she, good. <laughs> she would have all these people threatening her, and then she would put out something in the newspaper and be... By the way, um, all these men seem to want me so badly. I'm not interested. <laughs> like, um, she was uh, incredible. She was also kind of hysterical. Um, her, her, yeah, her confidence was just kind of out of this world. But at the same time, I, I feel like it was very much a necessity. Um, she like immigrated to this country and didn't know anyone and she kind of was standing here in New York City on her own two feet and she did what she had to do and I thought that was incredible. Yeah, I I agree. I I think the biggest takeaway from the story it, when I started writing this, I didn't realize that this is actually kind of the 100 year anniversary of the Harlem Renaissance, the initiation, oh, yeah. yeah, the launch yep. of the Harlem mm-hmm. Renaissance, wow. which I think was launched, some some sites say, or uh, 1919, some 1920, but it's, it's around now. So, mm-hmm. um, so what struck me was that there's so many similarities then and today. And what also struck me is that a hundred years ago, there were black business people. There was a strong community. There were, you know, a community of black people who invested in one another. Yeah. And, um, and I, I just, I, and I'm still learning about the artists and the politicians and the people, you know, so many people of that, the lawyers, the doctors, you know, that I, I never heard of before. And, I'm still learning about these people. You know, they were superstars. They were like the Beyonce of today. And so, I mean, I'm some often I think like what what's going to happen in a hundred? Could I can't even imagine people not knowing who Beyonce is yeah. in a hundred years. Yeah. Or you know, and yeah, that's, that's kind story, of exactly yeah. what um, has happened. There are so many art, like Josephine Baker. She was an international star. I'm learning so much about American history, African-American history, and how things looked 100 years compared to how they are now, and just thinking about 100 years from now, and how we're going to depict these times. Like, there's a new renaissance going on, Mm -hmm. I feel, with so many women directors Mm -hmm. and um, writers and, uh, you know, African-American women writers and directors now coming out, like with Ava DuVernay and all of her people and her crew. And and I'm just thinking this is, uh, you know, Lena Waithe, you know, I'm thinking this is like kind of a new renaissance. Mm -hmm. So I just hope that um, it's not only recorded, but people can celebrate this time in 100 years as well. Mm -hmm. 
And since you've mentioned, you know, directors and, and these things, I would love to dig into your backstories now as podcast creators. How did the two of you um, get into audio drama? So I listened to, I've been listening to podcasts since oh, like my, uh, like maybe 10 years, but I did not know audio dramas existed. So um, what was the first one? Actually, Alba Salix was one of my first, The Crown. Um, Eli's the one of our producers. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I, I, yes, absolutely. And I thought, wow, this is, this is a radio show. I was so, I loved the music. I loved the sound effects and I loved the characters and I loved the story and they were just short enough and I could follow them and I thought they were funny. And um, I come from a production background. So I didn't, I wanted to produce Harlem Queen, um, but I didn't want to, I didn't feel like I could afford to do it as a, obviously a pilot or a movie or a series or even a web series. So I found that the audio drama was a good option, um, a great option, a great genre, a venue, uh, more, you know, to share the story. So with me, I'd have to say I, um, I'm only now getting into like podcast dramas. I think I've, I've listened to podcasts for a while, but Usually it's like TED Talks and NPR. <laughs> That's, um, that was that has been my history with podcasts. I'd say for the last like five years. Um, however, I did listen to so BBC Radio um, occasionally does or BBC Radio Four. I don't remember which one, but they occasionally yeah. do um, like readings of Shakespeare, and they have all these amazing. English um, or British actors just do a Shakespearean drama completely on the radio. And I loved that. Um, I've listened to several of those over the last couple of years. And I almost, I, I remember when I was listening to them, I was like, I wish that we did more of this over here in the States. And now I realize that that's we are doing that. <laughs> um, that we are knowing, <laughs> that we are moving more towards that because I think I honestly think it's wonderful. Um, so I'm I'm new, but I I do love it here. <laughs> no, <Welcome>. thank you. <laughs> you you will. Know. Uh. <laughs> Um, so how did the two of you um, meet and get to know each other? Um, uh, for this? You, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, through through Harlem Queen, I uh, we have a mutual friend who told me that um, Yanni was auditioning for this project for Harlem Queen, and as I said, I had already been reading about Stephanie St. Clair, so I was over the moon, um, <laughs> excited about this. I was like, I must audition immediately. Um, so I sent in my audition and I'm very happy that she liked what she heard. And, mm -hmm. um, and the rest after that is kind of history. It's been so wonderful, um, working with Yane and so, like, just, and, I mean, she's also sitting here, um, 
<laughs> but like genuinely just an amazing and gracious and um, just fun to be around. And it's just been a wonderful journey. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so glad. Yeah, I really, that was something that was really Aww. important for me because I, mm-hmm. um, this is something that, um, that I just, uh, you know, not to sound cliche, but dreamed of doing. And so all of the actors that came in were not nice, patient, very talented, prepared. Gabrielle, I think we spent two weeks on the accent. Oh, yeah, I, don't we know. Did. I mean, that's a whole <laughs> other conversation. Like, I, you know, Madame St. There's there are no recordings of yeah. Madame St. Clair. So we kind of had to build her from scratch. From scratch yeah. So we knew that she was foreign, born in a French speaking island. Um, so she would have like a Caribbean French accent. Mm-hmm. Plus, you know, Gabrielle <laughs> does this amazing job of speaking in a French Caribbean accent and 1920s slang. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it, it was a process. <laughs> it's very yeah, impressive. <laughs> and the lines that I feel yeah. she has to say, I mean, they're such a mouthful. I'm like, okay, how can I rewrite this? And she says it. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> moving on. Yep, moving on. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's just, for me, it's also been a wonderful experience just to see something like this realized and the um, people who came through, like the actors, our director, Sean, um, our sound sound design, our recording studio. I mean, Kieran was so invested in the project, I feel. Like he was very careful about how uh, we recorded and he checked on the levels and all of that good stuff. And um, it was just a lovely experience so i'm looking forward to continuing it with the crew what recording studio did you use we use the buddy project in queens okay awesome awesome that's really cool (laughs) yeah i just i know that i have like um i got a lot of people who live in new york who are looking for recording studios all the time so they're a great place he's a great guy yeah they were lovely yeah um, and since you started talking about it already, um, you know, Gabrielle talking about this, this accent, um, research, uh, dialect classes, I'm really curious as to, um, some of the details of the process of creating things like your, like the accent, like the attitude, and maybe some of the stuff that, something that you incorporated that people could listen for when they're listening to Harlem Queen. Yeah. Um, yeah, we kind of touched on this, but it, it definitely was a a collaboration in the beginning. <laughs> um, I think we were just kind of emailing back and forth. Um, Yanni would send me these recordings um, of people talking from French islands, and she was kind of like, kind of like this, <laughs> like this is a jumping point. And then I would find a video of someone talking, and I would send it back to her, and I'm like, is it like this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we just did that for like a week of just sending videos and recordings back and forth of of what we um, what we wanted her to sound like, and 
And Gabby sounds exactly how I imagined Madame St. Clair <laughs> should sound. Thank I couldn't you. believe it. I mean, it worked out perfectly. Thank she you. sounded exactly like the voice in my head. <laughs> she, she does. Um, and, and then after that, it was, after we kind of like narrowed it down, it was just um, practicing and muscle memory and... Um, and I'm I'm also like I'm also someone who's very precise. Uh, I like to be precise about things. Uh, so I uh, I went to school for acting. So I studied like speech and voice. And um, one thing there's like an IPA. There's like a, mm-hmm. a phonetic alphabet. And so basically, I studied these act this combination of accents that we put together and then I just kind of wrote them out phonetically and uh and then I just practiced them until it became like muscle memory um because it's it's interesting how one I also love accents but two it's interesting how um the way that you speak when you grow up, your muscles kind of like form around them. So when you're doing another accent, your mouth will actually start to get tired (laughs) Um, because it's working all these muscles that it is just not used to working. So it's just really, it's just repetition um, and doing it so much that your, that your mouth is like, oh, okay, I understand. (laughs) Um, it's like, this was weird and I didn't get it. There's a word for that when you're learning Russian, actually. Um, Oh, is there? People who, well, I mean, there's a phrase and it's, um, probably you can guess it, but when you're learning Russian, they will tell you that you will get what they call Russian headaches. Um, yeah. Uh, because you're doing all of these all of these shapes with your mouth and with the muscles inside of your mouth and in your th- and sounds in your throat that you're just not used to making. And it's exactly yeah. what you describe. Yeah. I, I am a linguist, academically trained linguist. Um, Amazing. So, uh, <laughs> I love that. Exactly my thing. Um, <laughs> you're like, yeah, I studied the IPA for, like in school and I used it for this. I'm just like, yes. <laughs> so happy right now. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I love that you know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm always really interested in the way that actors especially um, sort of design accents when they don't have something to, like, a source material to go off of. Um, yeah. And this is, so this is really interesting. You know, we have we have the usefulness of the internet is, of course, that now you can find recordings on things like YouTube of people from the areas that you're looking for that you can listen to um, and see if you can imitate those things and or fold them in and figure out how they're making those sounds. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's something that I was always and have always been like fascinated by ever since I was a little kid. So this was honestly a, a treat. Like <laughs> um I I probably enjoyed it more than I, I should have. But um yeah, like that whole week that we were sending things back, I was just completely nerding out and be like, oh, well, I heard this person talk like this. Like, is this, this like, so this was, I, I make it sound like work, but honestly, I was having fun. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah. That sounds about right. I'm having fun just thinking about yeah. it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so Harlem Queen has this really wonderful sense of atmosphere, right? From the accents to the music that you chose to the slang. So can you talk about the way that you approached the design to evoke the 1920s in audio? 1920s Harlem specifically, of course. Yeah, so um, of course, for me, it was the music, starting with the music. Um, you had early jazz, so, and um, uh, I wanted each scene to have its own sound so that you could recognize each scene. So if you may not notice, but Madame Stephanie St. Clair has Josephine Baker playing mm. um, when she's in her salon, or... Um, there's some early, super early um, Duke Ellington. So uh, I wanted to start with the music. And then the sounds were, I knew there would be guns. I knew there would be the sounds of cars. Um, but also what, like one of the earliest scenes when they're going out to dinner, not dinner, sorry, they're at the, um, at the contest winners club uh, dinner. I, what, what drew me to this period so much was the elegance and the sophistication and the music and, you know, the perfectly bobbed hairstyles and the perfect, like, sh dresses and the heels and, this, and, and the beauty of it. So I really was trying to capture some of that in some of the early, uh, in just about every episode, I wanted them to sound like they're working at walking in heels. I wanted the sound of clinking glasses, that dinner scene. I wanted the sound of clinking glasses and, you know, you know, silverware on plates, <laughs> you know? Um, I wanted the sound of a live band playing, of Duke Ellington playing, which he, you know, he was very young at the time. Um, I wanted the sound, I wanted the Langston Hughes to sound young. And Steve, I thought, did a really good job of that because Yank Langston Hughes was young at one time. He was just <laughs> like a kid from, you know, the Midwest. And, you know, he sounds like any of these kids around here now who's 20 years old. Yeah. So I wanted to capture that. And um, I also wanted to capture some of the underworld, like the, the clinking glasses. You know, this is prohibition. So the whole notion of having a clinking glass with, with alcohol in it, that right there is, you know, you're breaking the law. So uh, <laughs> I, I wanted the clinking glasses. I wanted the blues music. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I started with the, the music and then just those touches that I thought represented elegance to me. Um, uh, you know, I started with that. That's something that has been said a couple, like a few, uh, several times in some of the reviews that I've seen online is that Harlem Queen does steep the listener in this feeling of being in the Harlem Renaissance and being in Harlem in the 1920s. So I would love Great. this so look into the sounds <laughs> that you were looking at. Yeah. Um, so um, the historical uh, Stephanie Sinclair she endured some pretty truly awful things, right? Uh, notably a lot of um, sexual assault um, and a, a different mm -hmm. kind of production, like a, quote, gritty, realistic, unquote, depiction of her life, especially one probably made by a white director, um, would have lingered on those traumas. And um, But you give us a Sinclair who is powerful, who is successful, 
who is threatened um, by people, but is capable and willing to strike back with equal force. Um, and uh, and you, as you've mentioned, I know that you were um, fascinated by the Harlem Renaissance as the answer to your own questions about things like the black version of Downton Abbey per your bonus episode, right? So I'd love for you to talk about this decision um, on where and when to focus your story. Like I said, um my bonus episode, I was watching Downton Abbey and I just wanted to see the black version of it. So Downton Abbey, I think begins in 1919. And, um, and so I was looking at the, like, like I said, the clinking glasses on Downton Abbey and the silverware and the China. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, we have this, we have the Harlem Renaissance where we're dukes and and, and counts and ladies and madams and, you know, Empress Bessie Smith and all, you know, we have our own royalty here and we, we had it in the United States at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I decided to start it there. Um, and also when I learned about Madame Stephanie St. Clair, um, it seemed like a good crossroads like this is an incredible time of sophistication and elegance and the intelligentsia and art and culture and then underneath all of that you have the nitty-gritty of prohibition the numbers runners the gangsters the mobsters prostitution and it's it's the it's these on this underworld that's kind of funding the upper world the you know the above ground world the sophistication um, because you know these writers needed sponsors they needed patrons um, and uh, the gangsters had that kind of money um, certainly not um, you know other writers and intellectuals so <laughs> <laughs> as we <Yeah>. all know <laughs> uh, yeah. yes so everybody here is earning uh, pockets of money <laughs> right <yeah. laughs> so. I just thought it was a good crossroads. I thought it was a good, uh, you know, two worlds coming together. Gabrielle, I would love for you to tell me about some recent acting projects uh, that have really excited you beyond um, Harlem Queen. And well, actually, I've been writing more. Um, Yeah, recently, I've been writing more. And um, that's actually kind of how I've spent my summer. So I'm, so that's something that I'm actually very excited about is that I have something that I'm hoping to be shooting in the fall, uh, that, or later, November, Mm -hmm. December, uh, that I wrote myself, um, a pilot that I wrote for a series that I'm trying to get off the ground. And I'm psyched about that. That's really yeah. exciting. I'm and, so happy for you. Yeah. That's good. That's really great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm super, super excited about that. And um, and then I have another short film that I'm shooting with uh, a friend of mine who, and that should be happening later this year as well. So I also act and direct and write. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So, um, so all of those things are coming up and I'm excited about that. And I'm also just excited for more Harlem Queen. That's, yeah. like, that's what I'm always excited <laughs> for. <laughs> um, Yana, in your profile page on the New York City Screenwriters Collective Meetup, 
Uh, you write that you've like written and directed your own short films. Tell me about those. So, um, years ago, I call it BC before children. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that's amazing. I uh, actually okay. So when I was sixteen years old, I saw this film called Yusan, called A Dry Wise. A dr- um, sorry, Sugarcane Alley, yeah. directed by this woman named Yusan Palsy, mm-hmm. who actually is from Martinique. I'm sorry, Martinique or Guadeloupe. I'm not sure. I have to double check. <laughs> and um, I wanted to be a filmmaker. Mm. So I I would literally be the person who would had the, those big clunky VHS cameras <laughs> and running around with my sister, my younger sister and I. And that's what we did. We made our own short films. So um, I, that led into from my teenage years up until, like I said, BC, you know, right before I had a family. So um, I would make my own short films. I would send them to film festivals. They would play in film festivals. I would get a little like an award here, an honorable mention there. And I actually created, um, founded a film festival called Chicks with Flicks, which was showcase the work of women filmmakers. And I did that in the Lower East Side for for 10 years. Um, So that, that kept me busy for a long time, as well as working in production. I used to work as freelance as a producer on commercials and TV and um, film. Mm -hmm. So that was all before children. Um, (laughs) And then I had my family. And then so to get back into production and and writing um, and seeing my, hearing my my words formed (laughs) out of the mouths of people great like Gabby and the rest (laughs) of the actors. I found my way into audio drama. So, um, uh, like, I I love the genre. I love the challenge of it. Um, creating an image in your mind through sound. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say, like, and it's not just because Gabby's sitting right here next to me, <laughs> but I say this, I've said this to other people with her around, not around. But the nuances in her voice and the actors' voices that, like, there's this one scene where she does, like, a little crack in her voice with, I don't, I don't and I'm like, that's it. Like, that is something that you, you can, the sound is so important. And um, so... It's it's for me. It's been challenging and a nice challenge to tell this story only through sound. It, you know, translate those emotions only through sound. Um, and uh, you know, like you said, I'm I'm so glad people appreciate the the soundscape because I wanted to you know create you know uh, it's just so interesting and challenging and fun to create the world just through sound. What was the biggest challenge that you had when when starting to write for audio? So initially, like like I said, this was a, a script, like a pilot I had written. So basically what I did, mm-hmm. I am, I'm in a great writer's group that I am so appreciative of. And I want to give a shout out to my writer's group. Um, I basically brought in those pages as a pilot and just reformatted it as an audio (laughs) (laughs) with sound, and it did not work. It did not work. Everyone in the group was like very nice. They said, oh no, we get it. This sounds great. But, you know, how are we going to know that you're in a different scene? And how are you going to create? So um, the writer's group was very helpful. And um, 
So then I just had to rethink in terms of telling of sound. Like I didn't want a marble, heels walking on a marble floor. I wanted them walking on a wood floor. Um, I wanted the marble floor sound at the dinner because that's a more sophisticated, elegant location. And um, I don't want 1940s jazz. That didn't exist yet. I need like early, <laughs> you know, um, early jazz. Um, I, there was this one scene where I had the car radio playing. Duh. Like they didn't have car radios. <laughs> and I had to completely take that out because I was relying on that music to set the new location. I had to take that out. I wrote a scene in the hospital. I don't have, in the 1926, there were no, you know, monitors. There were no pagers. Paging Dr. Mike, paging Dr. Mike, or Melissa, Dr. Melissa. There was none of that. <laughs> and so um, I could I didn't, and then I was had to rethink of what are the sounds of a hospital in 1927 or whatever. So um, those things were challenging but i'm still learning so much i'm i'm learning so much about history yes <laughs> and the and, I, and the definitely and, and the when things are invented you yeah. know invented like okay was the pressure pump invented by 1912 yeah it's oh, good wow, yes wow. it was yes so we can have that sound <laughs> wow yeah yeah that's a statement that i get a lot from a lot of from from people who produce period pieces as well there's a lot of history that I did not know, but I don't know. <laughs> did this exist? Right. <laughs> What's next for Harlem Queen? Well, I was just telling Gabby that in uh, February or March, um, we're going to do a live reading recording of Harlem Queen at the um, oh, wow. uh, Langston Hughes house. In Harlem, Langston Hughes' house is uh, a space. It's called the I2 Collective. Um, and it's, central, it's in central Harlem, so we're going to have some of the oh, wow. actors there with um, our recording person, a Foley artist, and we're going to have like a good old-fashioned, you know, radio play reading recordings. So that, and that will launch us into our second season. Um, you know, I was just telling Gabby not to give too much away, but I want to talk more, I want to... Mm-hmm share more about um, Stephanie's humanity, um, the development, the, mm-hmm. the backstory of the relationship of Stephanie and Bunky, um, as well mm-hmm. as show her a little more of her weakness, which could be her daughter. Um, mm-hmm. Probably, well, it is your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and uh, also, uh, now I, I live in Harlem, so there's so many different scenes, like soundscapes in Harlem that can exist, like Jungle Alley, which I'm just learning about. You know, it's the whole strip of just the clubs and the restaurants that were Black-owned, not the Cotton Club, but this whole strip of clubs that were Black-owned and Black people could go to and white people. And, you know, the Cotton Club was um, segregated. So I want to bring mm-hmm. those, some more of that music and some of that sound into play. Um, yeah. That's it. That sounds awesome. Mm, thank you. I'm excited. Thank you. I'm really excited for your live show in that, in that space. That sounds perfect. Yeah, I think so too. Thank you so much for coming on Radio Drama Revival. 
It's been really wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Oh, man, that was fun. Thank you, Ellie. And thank you again, Yanni and Gabrielle. Y'all were fantastic. Now, you can support Yanni Smith and Gabrielle Adkins on Patreon at patreon.com slash harlemqueen. You can follow Yanni Smith at Audio Harlem and Gabrielle at underscore G Adkins on Twitter. You can support our work on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And you can follow us on Twitter at Radiodrama. Visit our website at radiodramarevival.com where you can read our bios, investigate our archive, and buy merch at our marvelous store. That's radiodramarevival.com slash shop. And now, your moment of Will. Will, tell us about history, please. Hi, listener. Last episode, I told you about Josephine Baker, one of my favorite figures from the Harlem Renaissance, an absolute bicon, a dancer, a singer, a genuine celebrity of this era. And I asked you about her political past. Well, what's interesting about Josephine Baker is that she wasn't just a celebrity. She was also a spy and like a total badass. In her sheet music, she would have secret messages written in invisible ink. She smuggled things in her luggage, she got tons of secrets, and for her work, she wound up receiving both the Croix de Guerre, uh, which was the first for an American woman, and the Medal of Resistance in 1946. What a badass. And hey, listener, there's unexpected things about you that are amazing, too. Thank you, Will. And now it's time for the credits. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao. Our social media manager is Anne Baird. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouse. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs>